This is your home of the Oregon Ducks. Up to Brown Jr. Passes off to Smith for the dunk with two hands. And we love to talk about them. With expert interviews, insight, and analysis, this is Quack Attack with Judah Newby. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling on your home of the Oregon Ducks. 1029 and 750 The Game. And welcome into the Quack Attack, another Wednesday night edition of the show. I'm Jude Danubi here on 102.9750 The Game. Ducks and Beavers coming up on Saturday. Ducks coming off a win over UCLA, a loss to USC. Same can be said for the Beavers. They knocked off the Bruins, fell to the Trojans as well. Coming up over the one-hour program, we're going to talk to Tyson Alger of the Oregonian. He covers the program for the Oregonian and Oregon Life. He joins us coming up in our second segment. And the voice of the Beavers, Mike Parker, the legendary voice himself. He joins us at the bottom of this hour as as well it's going to be the 350th edition of the rivalry between the ducks and the beavers and to the casual basketball fan it's going to be a surprise to learn that that is the most contested rivalry in the history of college basketball no other rivalry has been played more than the civil war between the ducks and the beavers now oregon state won this matchup of course back on january the 5th uh, a few weeks ago in corvallis it was a 12-point game and it was actually that week that uh, our first Quack Attack college basketball show aired on that first Wednesday after the new year. And we talked to Tyson Alger at that point. We talked to Danny Moran of the Oregonian at that point. And it seemed to be relatively agreed upon that that was a very big game, not for both teams, but particularly for the Ducks, that that was a quote-unquote must win. Now, here we are a few games later. Oregon had dropped the contest at Arizona. They've started three and four overall in Pac-12 play. And while it is still January and the season technically doesn't quote unquote begin until late February, moving into Pac-12 tournament play, this is ever so important for the Ducks to win. If they lose at home to Oregon State, I mean, that narrative speaks for itself as being a relatively lackluster season. You can't lose twice to your rival, let alone lose to them on your home floor a year after beating them by 40 points and call that a successful year unless you do something remarkably redemptive in the postseason. So that's where it's at for Oregon. Now, I looked up on the ESPN matchup predictor earlier today, and it's got the Ducks having a 81.2% chance of victory on Saturday night. It's a pretty big number. Part of that is Oregon's ability to play well at home, play with good energy. You saw that on display in the first half against UCLA. But part of that, I think, is also because the Beavers have historically been such... It's been so tough for them playing on the road. And I'm going to ask uh, Mike Parker about that coming up at 7.30. What is it about playing road games? And he's got an interesting answer for you. So you want to tune in then for the voice of the Beavers. As for the Ducks, they did lose at USC, and that was a disappointing one. Uh, against USC, I should say. And that's coming off the very good effort that they had against Arizona the previous Saturday, the upset of Arizona State on the road the previous Thursday. They come up against USC. I talked about it in my matchup to watch on last Wednesday's show, Peyton Pritchard against Jordan McLaughlin. And while Peyton played well, the best player on the floor in the last five minutes of the game was Jordan McLaughlin. And he went 6-for-6 six six from the free throw line. Ducks failed to take care of the basketball. The key stat there, they were out-rebounded by 10 
and USC shot like 13 or 14 more free throws than Oregon did. Oregon did go 11 for 11 from the line, but that's just not getting to the line enough when the other team's going 25 times in a night. So it's really simple things like that, and that's kind of the beauty of college basketball is when you kind of splice down why a team wins or loses, you can often look in a you know variety of statistics. It's there for you to see. It's quantifiable in a lot of ways, and for the Ducks, it's failure to close out down the stretch. It's having leads in the last five minutes of games and then slipping up at the end. Even, obviously, as we saw against UCLA, Oregon sprints out to this massive first-half lead. UCLA charges back with good energy to start the second half. Oregon stems that energy, but what happened in the last five minutes of the game? Silly turnovers, silly offensive possessions, bad shots, failure to rebound, bad fouls, and what have you, UCLA makes it a one-possession game in the final minute, and you could kind of feel everyone's energies in Matthew Knight Arena pick up a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of nervousness. Duck fans were unsure. I was unsure watching the game if Oregon was going to be able to close that game out, and if they would have lost that game, man, that would have been it. But they found a way to pull through, in large part because of the leadership of Peyton Pritchard. He did a very nice job of stepping up and hitting some clutch free throws. His leadership has been... Uh, vital for this team all season long. Uh, Tyson Alger made a good note in his piece earlier today that Pritchard, he played all but 12 minutes against Oregon State a few weeks ago. Since that Oregon State game, including the games at Arizona, including the games versus USC and UCLA, I think Pritchard sat out a combined five minutes in all of those. I mean, he is always, always on the floor. So Dana Altman spoke to Joey Mack on the postgame for IMG and discuss the play of Peyton Pritchard. I mean, Peyton hit the big free throws. You know, Peyton really did a great job of leading us, did a great job. You know, we're, we're going to have to do a better job. You know, Aaron got going downhill on us, and, you know, he's a great guard. I'm, I'm not sure he's not the best guard in our league, but we sure did a poor job, you know, fighting the dribble. Our guys, I think we got a little tired there at the end, and, and uh, defensively we're really bad. High praise for Aaron Holiday there. And, yeah, the Ducks were bad defensively. And they've got to work on that. Now, the matchup with Oregon State promises to be a little bit of a slower-paced game and not the 93-90 variety that we saw Saturday night against UCLA. It's going to be something more in the 70-65 to range. I think both teams would kind of hope for that. But uh, we'll see if... And another point that the Ducks made, or that Dana Altman made, was how important the three-pointer is going to be in this matchup. And Oregon was unable to connect on their three-pointers in the first matchup with Oregon State. And we'll see if they can uh, connect on um from downtown in this one dana allman also on teaching points ahead of the civil war well obviously the defense has to get much better uh, we got to continue to develop our bench you know i think we got a little fatigued there late and and you know bad turnovers just a lot of things we've, we've got to do a better job with and they hope to do that as well all right the beavers also split their matchups with the socal schools last week they are going to want to rebound after losing to USC. Talk about the matchup on the other side with Tyson Alger of the Oregonian. This is the Quack Attack on 102.9.750 The Game. Back to Quack Attack with Judah Newby. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. On your home of the Oregon Ducks. 102.9.750 The Game. Pulls up the three. 6-75, Oregon on top. 
Big shot from Brown, downtown. Welcome back to the Quack Attack 102 tonight, 750 the game. Let's go to the lines right now and talk to Tyson Alger of the Oregonian and Oregon Life. He covers Oregon basketball uh, for that institution as the Ducks get ready for the Beavers. Tyson, let's start with uh, last week's matchup with UCLA. Oregon get out to that big lead in the first half. Were the fans at Matthew Knight getting as kind of restless as the rest of us watching on TV when the Ducks were letting that big lead dwindle away before pulling it out? Yeah. Atmosphere by the time the, the final horn went off in that one, because it was the the third game in a row that Oregon had had a, a sizable lead going into the final five minutes, and it was nearly the third game in a row where Oregon blew such a lead. I mean, they were they were up by 18 points with about 15 minutes left of the game, and then uh, you know then it just started to, to dismantle late, and I, I think there's definitely a lot of uh, oh no, this is happening again uh, going around the arena, but. Uh, uh, they actually, with about a minute left, they actually played some really smart basketball. They did some smart fouling, and uh, uh, they were able to uh, kind of come together and uh, seal off uh, what will surmount, or end up being a, a really important win for their season, I think. Yeah, and it puts them at 3-4 and four to start in Pac-12 play. In terms of Pac-12 record, is that was that predictable, a 3-4 and four start um, for the Ducks, or is that uh, surprising at all in your mind? I mean, I think at the start of the season, a lot of people, probably even including myself, would have assumed they would have been doing better than this. Um, I mean, there are obviously a lot of factors into why uh, they've struggled a little bit. I mean, the the biggest thing being youth and the fact that some of their veterans are, are new to the roster too. But um, you know, they 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 played really well at times. I really like how they played during the Arizona series, um, but then just I think the inconsistencies have been so. talk to Tyson though about uh, Cal and Washington State uh, <laughs> I took a look at your your piece and yeah that's just objective truth right there Wazoo and Cal struggling basketball teams with one and six marks in Pac-12 play but everybody else uh, as you mentioned Tyson among you know a conference with a lot of parity that being said do you think Arizona is still at a tier above everyone else in the Pac-12 or could you see a scenario in which the Wildcats I don't, you know, continue to have moments of vulnerability in the conference play and might not win the conference tournament. I, I think the conference tournament is completely up for grabs. Uh, I think, I, I think just it, it's so close between everybody that uh, I, I think you put them in Vegas during a one week period and anything can happen. Uh, as for the rest of the regular season, I, I do think Arizona is the most complete team out there and uh, you know, the fact that they have, like, DeAndre Ayton on the team, uh, <laughs> that really bodes well for their chances. So I think Arizona is definitely a tier above everybody else. But in, in terms of guaranteeing that they're going to be able to win the Pac-12 tournament, I, I don't think that's uh, a guarantee whatsoever. 
Tyson Alger of the Oregonian and Oregon Live joining us. And check out their three-on-two podcast that Tyson does every week with Danny Moran, who covers the Beavers. Also, Devon Pouncey, part of that as well. That comes out weekly. Does that come out on uh, Thursdays, Tyson? Yeah, we're, uh, we usually shoot to record on Thursdays. Uh, it kind of depends a little bit on what uh, the playing schedule is for the week. But uh, we'll be recording uh, this Thursday and should have a podcast out by uh, noonish. Now, of course, it will take a Civil War theme, and when you take a look at Oregon taking on Oregon State this Saturday, it's the first time uh, on the conference schedule that the Ducks are uh, playing an opponent for the second time in this Beaver squad. So given the results of the initial Civil War matchup earlier this year, one that the Beavers won convincingly in Corvallis, what kind of adjustments do you expect to see out of Oregon when they host the Beavers Saturday? I expect them to play a lot better. Uh, I, I think that game at Oregon State was one of the worst games they've played this season. I mean, they were just, uh, in addition to being an offensive funk, they were just slow on 50-50 balls, on rebounds. I mean, Oregon State was just killing them on the offensive board. But um, after that game, they played, I think, their two best games of the season on that Arizona trip. And uh, while this past week was a bit of a, a mixed bag, uh, I, I do think Oregon has matured a little bit. Uh, I really like the way that Peyton Pritchard is playing right now. Uh, not only is his shot starting to hit, but he's just doing a really good job leading the team. And I think they've kind of bought in a little bit more on both ends of the floor. So uh, I think being back at home at Matthew Knight Arena, um, obviously uh, it's a rivalry game. You don't want to go 0-2 to uh, your rival. Uh, I, I, would, I would expect Oregon to play much better basketball. But at the same time, I think Oregon State's one of the more underrated teams in the conference. Just the, the experience they have between those three juniors. Well, I guess Drew Tinkle's technically a registered sophomore, but uh, to have all three of those guys healthy at the same time, uh, I, I really like the way Oregon State's playing, too. You mentioned Peyton Pritchard, and he had a couple big matchups that past week with Jordan McLaughlin with USC and Aaron Holiday for UCLA. And I know Holiday took a long time to get going for the Bruins, and he's one of their more talented and seasoned players um and but there were I, I could sense on the on the tv at least there were distinct moments that holiday was trying to get at pritchard a little bit uh, on both ends of the floor how do you think pritchard's handled himself in in moments where he's gone up against more seasoned more veteran point guards and as i look at oregon state's roster i know they've had transition of their own at the point guard position this year so how does that matchup kind of play out f for pritchard against oregon state I think I think Richard's done a really good job of handling himself lately. Uh, you know, I think he's the one player that kind of has a target on his back on the team because he's the really only returning starter from last year's roster. And um, you know, they made the Final Four, and, and he hasn't hardly ever lost in his career. And so, uh, I, I think it's been a bit of adjustment for him this year to kind of go through some of the ups and downs. But um, I mean, the, the last two games, he's he's been completely on fire, and he's been focused. He does he doesn't lose his composure out there. I, I think he's doing a really good job of leading this team as a sophomore. Um, as for going into this week, I mean, I, I would completely expect a, a, another big game for him. I mean, he's he's his, his shot has been the one thing that's kind of taken time to uh, um, basically taken time to take shape this season, and, and that's kind of been one of his strongest suits throughout his career. Like he's He's still been driving the ball. Um, he, he's been getting teammates involved, but right now he's been awfully hot from three point, and uh, that's uh, that, that's a big boost for the Ducks team because uh, when he when him and Elijah Brown are both on, that that gives Oregon a completely different looking offense than uh, when those two aren't. 
I know Oregon's bench played pretty well Saturday, highlighted by uh, Victor Bailey Jr., the high flyer. Um, <laughs> what do you kind of make of that unit right now? Uh, when I see that unit, I think of next year. Uh, and, and that's not and that's not to say that they're they're not doing well. I, I mean, you just mentioned Victor Bailey Jr. has been playing really good basketball the last couple of weeks. Um, he's just a little inconsistent. What I do like out of him is you do get 100% effort every time. Same with like a player like Abu Kijab, who you know gets very sparse minutes. But uh, you know they they have a lot of talent coming off that bench. But I just I still think it's about a year out from being uh, making this team. Uh, very competitive. Uh, I think next year with all the pieces they have coming in, I mean, they, they could obviously be the top 25, top 10, top 10 looking team. But um, I, I, I think Oregon's bench, what you're seeing right now is I, I think you're seeing progress from the from earlier in the season. I mean, they're at least capable now. I, I remember during that PK-80 tournament, it was just tough to see, see them get any sort of production off the bench. But, you know, right now you're getting Paul White back into the groove. Keep in mind, he hadn't really played at all the last seasons between transferring and having an ab injury so he's he's a productive player off the bench getting uh victor victor bailey off the bench i mean he, he's a has shot in the arm in terms of energy so i mean it's oregon has more depth than they did at the beginning of the season it's just it's just still very young for them dyson alger joining us on the quack attack dyson i think i brought you on uh on the first show of the calendar year and that was before the first civil war matchup with oregon state and that was kind of being described as a must-win for the Ducks for their uh, at-large hopes, at least in the NCAA tournament. They lost that game by 12. Now, they helped their case with, obviously, the road win at ASU and the home win over UCLA and might be helped as well with the parity in their own conference. But what does that mean for this go-around with Oregon State? Is this also classified as a, quote-unquote, must-win? Or, as uh, Bill Walton would say, is every game a must-win for these teams? Well, I, I mean, it, it's so tough at this point because, I, I you know, I, I still think the conference is going to get three to four uh, tournament selections. I don't think it really deserves more than that. But I, if, if uh, it, I just can't really give you the top four teams in the Pac-12 right now without just saying Arizona, and then I don't know the next three after that. I mean, everyone seems so equal. Um, uh, Labeling that first Civil War as a must-win was probably a little early, but this one, I, I don't think Oregon can lose twice to Oregon State, the team that, uh, while has a better record than or has a similar record to them in conference play, is about 100 spots behind them in RPI. Uh, that just having two sub-100 loss RPI uh, in a season where you don't have a ton of great wins, uh, it, basically Oregon has to win this game if it wants to have a shot at making the tournament, unless it goes on a, a streak afterwards and wins just about every other game, but. It's uh we're you know we're getting into, into late January here. The Ducks are going to need to start putting together a run, and uh, it just it wouldn't start with a lost Oregon State if if they want to get there. Well, to your point, right now I'm looking at ESPN's uh, Power Index and its matchup predictor, giving the Ducks an 81.2 percent chance to beat Oregon State on Saturday. Uh, that seems pretty high, but it just goes to show you that uh, you know the the faith well, in Dana Altman winning a big game and. And kind of speaking of that, Tyson, uh, Dana did win his 200th game at University of Oregon, um, you know, and he's the third coach in program history to accomplish that. You know, what what's his legacy right now as a, as the Oregon head coach? And obviously we, we might be talking semantics, but is this the destination job that Dana Altman will be at long term? I mean, that's an impossible answer in one sense, but in another sense, 
you know, we've seen Ernie Kent move on to a different job, but, you know, within the Pac-12. Is there any chance that you could see Dana Altman parlaying an Oregon platform into something bigger if he keeps succeeding? You know, it, it's tough to tell, and, and I can't I can't say that I know Dana well enough to know what his, his uh, you know, secret ambitions are or anything, but uh, I know Oregon loves Altman. Uh, he got that contract, contract extension last year. Um, he's ushered in probably one of the most successful eras of basketball here at Oregon over a six, seven-year span. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there are many jobs in this country he would ever leave for. I don't think there's anything really in the Pac-12. Um, maybe if something's rooted in, in later in his career, him wanting to go home, or if, you know, an absolute elite job comes up. I mean, and, and this is, I, there's nothing linking him to this or anything, but I'm just thinking, like, if, a, if an absolute elite job comes open, like if Mike Krzyzewski would ever retire or something like that. I mean, Duke would be a hard job to say no to, but that's only, that's, you know, there's only several coaches in the country who would be considered for that type of job, so. Um, but I know I know they have a really good thing going here. I, I, I know they like the momentum they're building. I mean, this is this is kind of a down season for them. But it's you know this this program's at a point right now where a down season can mean they're still in you know competitive within conference play. Um, and with the momentum they have going, I mean, they have you know one of the top recruiting classes coming next year. I, I think I think if you're a coach. Where you want, where you want to be at, is a place where a you can make money and be a place where you can consistently win. And, and right now, he's got Oregon in the spot where, you know, it might not be where they're contending for a national championship every season, but it looks like they'll be in the mix every every few seasons. And then I think that's a pretty good place to uh, um, to set up shop. And and that's definitely what Dan Alvin has turned Oregon basketball into. Find him on Twitter at Tyson Alger covers Oregon Ducks for the Oregonian and Oregon Live and be on the lookout for the three on two podcast. And uh, that will come out later this week as well. And Tyson, I'm sure we'll be tweeting that out too. Tyson, thanks so much for taking the time, my friend. And uh, I'll see you down at the game on on Saturday. Yeah, thanks, man. See you there. Coming up, Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers, joins us in four minutes time. This is the Quack Attack with Judah Newby on 1029 750 The Game. More Quack Attack with Judah Newby. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. On your home of the Oregon Ducks. 1029 and 750 The Game. As the voice of the Beavers, Mike Parker, and let's jump out to the lines now where Mike joins us, and he is entering, I believe, his 18th season as voice of the Beavers, just an absolute living legend in broadcast circles, a six-time Oregon Sportscaster of the Year. Mike, how are you? <laughs> Judah, I'm not sure about legendary, but I will say it's my 19th season, so <laughs> time flies. But I've been at it for 19 years now with the Beavs, and uh, looking forward to the 350th edition of the Civil War, which I've only, you know, I, I haven't missed many since uh, the early 70s, but I don't quite have the run that I have in football, which is about 45 straight now. What makes the basketball edition of the Civil War so different? Obviously, you've seen the Civil War matchup in just about every sport and have called many of them as well. What makes the basketball one between the Duck and Beavers um, kind of stand out? 
A couple of things, Judah. I think the proximity, of course, which doesn't change whatever the sport is. We're only 40, 45 miles apart, depending upon which parts of town we're talking about, Corvallis and Eugene. But the proximity on the court, the fans uh, in the old days at Mac Court, the fans at Gill, and, and certainly Matthew Knight Arena, when it gets loud and going, can be a very intimidating, raucous atmosphere. There's no question about that. It doesn't quite have the same feel or, or for me, the same kind of intimidating factor that MacArthur Court once had just simply because of how tightly packed in the fans were to the court. But the fact that the players are playing on a 94 by 50 hunk of wood, as Chair Kern used to say, with fans so close pressing in on the players and coaches, it just creates a a really intense, exciting atmosphere. And for me, when I think about Civil War basketball, the decade that I first was introduced to it was one of the most intense in the 70s with Dick Carter coaching at Oregon and, of course, uh, both the late Dick Carter and the late great Ralph Miller at Oregon State. I remember attending some of those games, watching those games, listening to those games, the intensity of those games in the 70s, which were often separated by just a few days, uh, even back-to-back days, if you can believe that. There were times in the late 60s and early 70s when the two teams would play one another on back-to-back days to fulfill their Pac-8 schedule requirements, and that just created an incredible sense of urgency and intensity, and there's all sorts of things that go on in the rivalry. And even though some of the histrionics uh, have faded, we don't see quite uh, the, the similar things that we saw in the 70s uh, in the rivalry, uh, it, it never fades in terms of what it means to the players. Even Gligorie Rakorchevich, who comes to the Bees by way of Montenegro, he said it didn't take him long to, to understand uh, the importance of the Civil War. He's, he, and, he, and he said last year he and all of the Beavers, their pride was, was really hurt by their 42-point loss at Matthew Knight Arena, and they've been living and stewing on that for a long time. Losses are losses. But in the Civil War, when you lose, it sticks with you a long time. I know that one has for Big G. But back to the point that the rivalry, it, it just, it's never in our state, as you know, Judah, it, it's always kind of in the forefront of the mind. It's rarely back of the mind stuff. In a moment's notice, people on both sides of the rivalry have all sorts of stats and numbers and thoughts about their enmity toward the rivalry or whatever else, players have the same thing. It's just an amazing phenomenon to me. And the proximity, I think, of the two schools uh, creates that and the fact that in basketball, you know, the proximity is, is within feet. Fans and, and are within just a few feet of the combatants on the court it makes it a very interesting situation. I know it's on the forefront of Oregon's mind, the 12-point loss they suffered in Corvallis mm-hmm. back on January 5th. And yet, Mike, I'm looking at this matchup indicator on ESPN.com, uh, giving the Ducks over an 81% chance to win. And yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, the Beavers beat them in Corvallis by 12. They've got similar resumes in conference play. Both have wins over UCLA. Oregon State arguably should have won at Arizona State, where the Ducks won mm-hmm. earlier this year. Mm-hmm. So why isn't Oregon State getting kind of the respect or the credit they deserve right now? Judah, I think it has to do with the – even though Oregon has stumbled a couple of times at home in conference play, surprisingly, but they have – 
even though that's the case, the Beavers road record in the Pac-12, not only under Coach Tinkle, it's not a it's not a Wayne Tinkle phenomenon. I went back and looked just to get ready for this. The Beavers, since Gary Payton's senior year, have won 39 games on the road in the Pac-12 and lost 204. Hmm. So, you know, there's a historical weight. I don't know how much that's computed into uh, ESPN game indicator or whatever it is you're referring to. <laughs> but I do think that the Beavers' road woes that have continued again this year, and even though they're playing better on the road, those games in Arizona were both winnable, and they had Arizona State, I thought, beaten and, you know, let some things get away from them defensively in that one, just as they did late against USC at home in the most recent loss. You know, but I, I think partly the 81% would be even higher if the Beavers hadn't beaten Oregon three weeks ago. They did, and they played well in it. But it's been hard for any Oregon State team in the last three decades to find a way to win on the road, and, and that may be part of that uh, number you just quoted. It's always fun to monitor the father-son dynamic with the Oregon State program between Wayne Tinkle as head coach and Trace, the leading scorer, mm-hmm. and great to see Trace finally healthy, and uh, Stephen Thompson Sr. as the assistant coach and Stephen Thompson Jr. as the second leading scorer on this team. Yeah, um, What's that been like to see both Stevie Jr. and Trace in their development as players getting to play for their fathers? It's been interesting in that Wayne, in the first year that he coached his own son, they there was a moment early in that in that new relationship where, you know, whether Trace was having some difficulty dealing with suddenly now my dad is my boss and coach on the court and what kind of, if it created a little bit of confusion or bewilderment or tension or what, I think those words may be a little strong, but Wayne and Trace had kind of a coming together early that first year where they sat down and talked father to son, coach to player, and ever since then, Trace is sort of, uh, he's almost uh, Timothy Hutton to Donald Sutherland in the great film Ordinary People when Hutton says to his dad, Dad, you needed to be on me more. You needed to get on me more like you used to with him. And, he, and Hutton uh, is begging for that kind of authoritarian figure as a dad. And Donald Sutherland says, well, you don't need it. You're the hardest, you know, you, you don't need it. Trace Tinkle doesn't really need it. He's the hardest-working player on the court, diving for loose balls. The numbers you quote are, are real. He's a great basketball player and ultra-competitive. But I've seen Wayne this year pull him, pull Trace aside and, and let him know pretty uh, fervently that he may have missed an assignment in a rotation defensively or didn't run the play as called out of a timeout or whatever else. But Trace, after that meeting with his dad, when they kind of got everything squared away, that relationship has been uh, enjoyable to watch develop. And the Thompson brothers, that's the other thing, too. Stevie, uh, one of the great college basketball players back in that Gary Payton era at Syracuse and legendary for his play with Syracuse, his sons are tremendous basketball players. And I've also noticed the dynamic of Stephen the Elder kicking into being able to challenge his, his own sons at times in practice and on the court for things that – as good as they are, there are things they're still learning and trying to get better at. There may have been a little reticence for a while on Stephen the Elder's part to let that message be heard, but he's been more vociferous lately in, in 
getting the attention of his sons about basketball-related stuff. So it's a great dynamic to watch unfold. There's tremendous affection and love uh, reciprocated on, you know, the sons and the father's part, but there's a lot of pretty uh, taskmaster coaching going on, too, and that's been fun to observe. Mike, I know your time is limited. Thanks so much for being generous to spend some with us here on 102.9750 The Game. And uh, I look forward to seeing you down there in Eugene on Saturday for another Civil War basketball game. It'll be great. Well, it's been a long time, Judah, a long time since uh, since I've seen you, so I look forward to that. But also a long <laughs> time since the Beavers have won at Matthew Knight Arena. The 81% thing, I get it. Oregon uh, is coming off a, a good win where they scored 94 points. But the Beavs, if they get their tempo going and their defensive presence going, as they did a lot against Oregon up here three weeks ago at Gill, I think it, it has a chance to be a very competitive, exciting game, unlike the one last year that still sticks in the Beavers' craw from what happened in Eugene a year ago. I think we'll see a far different game, and I'm glad you'll be there, and I look forward to seeing you, Judah. Yes, sir. Those feelings are mutual, and something tells me it's going to be a good game. Mike, yeah. thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Judah. Talk to you soon. All right, thanks to Mike Parker, the voice of the Oregon State Beavers in year 19. We'll go away and come back. Final segment, breaking down the 350th Civil War game. Ducks and Beavers, Saturday at 5 o'clock at Matthew Knight Arena. Final segment of the Quack Attack is up next on the game. You're listening to Quack Attack with Judah Newby, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling on your home of the Oregon Ducks, 1029 and 750 The Game. Going to expect a close game Saturday. I'm going to go down there for the Civil War 350th edition. It'll be a 5 p.m. tip. You can hear pregame starting at 4.30, of course, right here on the game from Oregon. I am G and Joey Mack will have the play-by-play. Uh, big thanks to Tyson Alger of the Oregonian for joining us earlier. Talking Ducks, Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers, joined us earlier as well. If you missed either one of those interviews, be sure to follow 1029 The Game on Twitter and also give it a follow on Facebook as well. The show is podcasted and posted online at the uh, at the conclusion of the program. So if you miss anything, I would especially recommend the conversation with Mike Parker. It's always fun to uh, speak with Mike in his 19th season as the voice of the Beavers. Final segment here on the Quack Attack here in a moment. We'll get to our key matchup, talk about uh, a couple of the interesting uh, X and O strategies that will be employed Saturday when the Ducks take on the Beavers. As for Oregon, this is an important time in the schedule. It really is. Last game for the calendar of January, and then next week, road trip to the Bay Area at Cal, at Stanford. Cal is struggling under Viking Jones. Ducks should be able to get that one with relative ease saturday afternoon at palo alto at stanford now stanford's just been a team that's been a thorn in everybody's side and frankly they've been winning a lot of close games they got a buzzer beater to beat usc remember that half court shot to beat them at the horn they also took arizona down to the wire and regardless of what you think about the wildcats in terms of their talent and vulnerability stanford is a very very tough team and a very good team at home that said, Oregon cannot afford to go into that road game next Saturday with Stanford with a 4 and 5 record. Right now they're 3 and 4. So they need both this win over Oregon State and next week's next Thursday's game over Cal in order to get back over 500 at uh, the early February mark and into that game with Stanford. Now, if they lose at Stanford, which they wouldn't be the first team to lose there, 
that would bring their Pac-12 record to five and five overall if they beat Oregon State and Cal. You're five and five with six games left in this year's Pac-12. That's actually not a bad spot to be. If you're five and five, you've got home games versus UW and Wazoo. Should be two wins. Road games at SC and UCLA. Got to get a split. Home to Arizona State and Arizona. Got to get a split. You're looking at a possibility about, I don't know, nine and seven there. So if you're nine and seven in Pac 12 play, get yourself maybe a three or four seed going into the Pac 12 tournament. Give yourself a decent shot to win that sucker. And as we spoke with Tyson Ellinger earlier, it's really anybody's ballgame once you get to Vegas. All right, let's get to the key matchup. Which matchup will be critical for the Ducks' success? Judah Newby breaks down the key matchup. Brought to you by Oregon College Savings Plan. Imagine the possibilities. Trace Tinkle is the leading scorer for Oregon State, averaging just a tick under 20 points a game. He was banged up most of last year, missed a whole bunch of games, unable to have an impact on the floor. But if Oregon is able to corral Trace Tinkle, they've got a shot in this game. I'm looking at Mikhail McIntosh. These guys are comparable. So Trace Tinkle stands at 6'8", 220. McIntosh, a little bit more beef, 6'7", 240. And Duck fans know what kind of game Mikhail brings to the floor. He's going to bang around. He's going to add an element of toughness. He's also got a great ability to create for himself off the dribble for a 6'7", 240 guy. And to be fair, I think a lot of the Duck offensive players have that ability. Uh, we saw that against UCLA. Oregon would kind of spread the floor with the spread offense, let one of them go to work in a favorable matchup. Oregon would, could beat their defensive matchup off the dribble anytime they wanted to. So this game, I'm particularly looking at Mikhail McIntosh. Can he have a big game against Trace Tinkle? And can he help be the defensive presence to help slow down the Beavers' leading scorer and son of the head coach as well? Here's a look at some numbers that have led to Oregon's success this year. And we talk about rebounding all the time. Dana Altman goes out of his way to point it out as well, but for good reason. When out-rebounding the opposition, Oregon is 12-1 and this year. When holding teams below 70 points, they're 7-1. and one. When they have more steals than the opposition, they are 9-2. and two. Sharing is caring. When Oregon has more assists than the opposition, they are 11-3. and three. Areas where they struggle, Oregon is an even 6-6 six and six when allowing 70 or more points. They are an even 7-7 seven and seven when committing more fouls. So we talk about rebounding and getting to the free throw line. Oregon got out-rebounded by USC by 10 last Thursday. They were outshot at the free throw line by double digits. They lost by five. There's your ball game. So that's going to be another key. So on the floor, it's going to be Trace Tinkle against Mikhail McIntosh. I'll be looking at that from media row. But also, the 70-point barrier, I think, will be key. Um, Oregon State did eclipse that barrier in the first matchup in Corvallis on their way to a 12-point victory over the Ducks. I'm not sure I see that happening for the Beavers this time around. I think Oregon's defense is going to be at a place where the intensity will be ramped up. Of course, this will be the first time they've seen a, an opponent for the second time this season. They are repeating with Oregon State, and the matchups the rest of the way, save with the Washington schools later, uh, will be... Um, 
will be matchups that Oregon has seen before. They've got the Bay Area trip. They've got the Washington schools. But, of course, they'll have repeat matchups with the uh, Arizona and Los Angeles schools later on this year as well. All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Quack Attack. Thanks for being along for the ride. I'll be going down to Eugene for the game Saturday. We'll be back a week from tonight, 7 to 8 p.m., for more Oregon Duck basketball talk on the Quack Attack as they go down to the Bay Area next week. I'm predicting an Oregon win in this 350th Civil War rivalry game, the most contested rivalry in college basketball history. Thanks to Chris Barty behind the glass for joining me. I'm Judah Newby. Big thanks to Tyson Alger and voice of the Beavers, Mike Parker. If you missed those conversations, follow at 1029 The Game. Have a good evening, everybody. We'll see you next week.